and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Lulu. And I'm your co-host, Pi. Before we dive into the proper episode, is there anything that you've been into or up to that you'd like to tell our listeners about, Pi? Continuing on from what I talked about in our last episode, I finished watching the adult animated TV series The Legend of Fox Machina, which is just like a very fun animated show that's basically a D&D campaign in TV show form. Lulu knows that I've been watching this because I sent her a lot of all caps texts about Dungeons and Dragons and like demonic bargains and how fun it was. So I enjoyed that a lot. It was a good time. I have been watching it as well. It's pretty fun. It's based off of like an actual D&D campaign that a bunch of voice actors used to stream, but it's gotten turned into an animated TV show. I am enjoying it a lot because I play D&D, so I'm sort of familiar with the archetypes and the sort of shenanigans that go down. It's pretty fun. I also read a book that listeners of our Baking Magic episode might enjoy, which is The Heartbreak Bakery by A.R. Capetta, which follows Sid, a queer, agender baker who accidentally bakes a bunch of negative feelings about a breakup into a batch of brownies, causing everyone who eats the brownies to also break up, and Sid and a cute new love interest have to run all around the city of Austin, Texas, trying to fix mistakes and bake delicious goods. And it was just like really cute and sweet and had a lot of great stuff about the queer community and queer relationships and also some really good food descriptions. I love A.R. Capetta's books, so I'm really glad to hear that was good because it's very high up on my list to read. I also read The Witness for the Dead by Catherine Addison, which is a standalone book set in the world of her other novel, The Goblin Emperor, which is one of my all-time favorite like high fantasy political intrigue books. The Witness for the Dead is pretty different. It follows a side character who is kind of a cross between a priest and a detective because he has the ability to talk to recently dead people, and his duty is kind of to like lay them to rest and catch their murderers if they've been killed. I would hesitate to call it like a cozy or happy book just because there is kind of a lot of murder in it, but it's also just very pleasant to read a book about a good person who is trying to do good things and be kind to people, which is something that Catherine Addison is good at doing. So I enjoyed that a lot. Lulu, is there anything that you've been into or up to that you want to talk about? Well, I just started my academic semester for the spring, so I have a feeling that my free reading is about to take a very sharp nosedive, but I just finished reading the novella Silver in the Wood by Emily Tesh, which I really liked. It's a very bite-sized story about a grumpy immortal man who lives alone in the woods until he meets a new folklorist who's come to study the forest. I really enjoyed sort of like the folklore and the atmosphere. It was a very soothing story, even though there were like evil tree monsters and stuff, so I liked that a lot. I also loved that novella. I knew it would be the kind of thing that you liked as soon as I read it, so I'm glad I was correct. Also, on your recommendation, I watched Arcane on Netflix, which is an animated fantasy TV show loosely based on the video game League of Legends, which I know nothing about. It caused me a lot of emotional devastation, and it will be the topic of a future episode. So in like two weeks, you can stay tuned for us talking about how Arcane emotionally devastated us. Personally, I'm very excited to talk about my emotional devastation. I'm also currently reading the horror novella Wilding Hall by Elizabeth Hand, which is a short horror story about a group of British folk musicians who go off into the countryside to live in a big, possibly haunted or otherwise creepy mansion to write an album, and then supernatural creepy stuff ensues. I really enjoy it because I like big spooky mansions and folk music, though admittedly I keep reading it alone in my room at night and scaring myself because I'm kind of a chicken, but I have been enjoying that. I'm also reading the fantasy novel Little Thieves by Margaret Owen, which is a very loose retelling of the fairy tale The Goose Girl, and it's about a maid who steals essentially the place and life of her employer, a princess, and then gets into a lot of trouble, including being cursed by some gods. I'm really liking it. It's got some great characters and some fun magic, And I think it's going to also be the topic of a future episode. So if you want to hear us talk about like geese and heists and the mortifying ordeal of being known, you can stay tuned for that. However, we are not here to talk about geese or bakeries or folk music. We're actually here to talk about a movie because we haven't done that many podcast episodes on movies. I feel like we've been pretty book heavy lately. But this week we are sort of getting back to movies and we're going to be talking about The Lost Boys, which is a 
1987 supernatural black comedy about vampires directed by Joel Shoemaker. If you have, I don't know, listened to all of our episodes or something, you remember that a couple weeks ago, actually no, a couple months ago because time has passed, oh God. <laughs> I watched this movie for class and I was like, this was fun and mentioned it as one of the things I had been enjoying recently. And then I was like, hey, I should make Pi watch this movie as well because it's fun, but also there's a lot to talk about in relation to like the portrayal of vampires and stuff. And considering you kept talking about how fun it was, I was like, I'm definitely down to watch this movie. And then I watched it and I also had a lot of thoughts about it. And then we looked at each other and we were like, maybe we have so many thoughts, we should just do an episode. So now we're doing an episode on The Lost Boys. Here we are. Also, to be clear, it was like a student taught class, not like an actual academic class, sadly, even though it was a good time and it had like a lot of academic discussions on it. I will say that I once did get to watch clips of what we do in the shadows for a gender studies class and we were analyzing like why people find vampire folklore fascinating. So that was an A plus time. You can in fact talk about vampires in a serious academic setting. In fact, I think maybe more people should talk about vampires in a serious academic setting. Like just a general thought, if you want to spice up your class, just like throw in some vampires. I don't care if it's a calculus class or a psychology class, just add vampires. I mean, I will be reading Dracula later this semester in one of my English courses, so clearly some people think you should talk more about vampires in your academic courses. Exactly. Also, if you're new here, we have done previous episodes on vampires as well, because apparently this is becoming a pattern on our podcast. In episode 11, An Anthropological Study of Cohabitating Vampires, we discuss the novella A Dowry of Blood by S.T. Gibson and the film What We Do in the Shadows, and then in episode 17, one of the books that we talked about was about vampires. So evidently we just really like vampires here. <laughs> we do. So basically The Lost Boys is Peter Pan, but it's set in 80s California and there's a vampire motorcycle gang instead of a bunch of magical fantasy children. Okay, so just to be upfront, I personally think this movie is extremely fun. The reason we haven't done that many movies on this podcast after the first episode, even though we keep meaning to, is because A, I just read a lot more books than I watch movies, and B, I'm not a film critic, so my consensus is generally, if I enjoy a movie, it's good, and I enjoyed The Lost Boys, which obviously must mean it's a good movie, right? That's also how my movie consumption generally works, but I also just watched this and I was like, gee, I have some thoughts about like the representation of vampires and like vampire tropes in this, so I think we could do an episode on it, and that's why we're doing an episode. I think that a lot of vampire media can be dark, which is kind of fun, but eventually you can kind of get tired of like the, woe is me, I'm a creature of the night who must consume the blood of others to live. There is nothing cheerful or fun going on in this media. And this movie, it's just kind of, it's plain fun to watch. Like it gets a little bit dark and it gets a little bit gory, but it's also funny and it has a good soundtrack. And it was just like an enjoyable time. So I, so I just thought it was a great vampire movie in general. I personally think that cinema needs more movies with vampire motorcycle chases because right now this film is the only one I can think holding up that niche. So if anyone who makes movies is listening, I have a suggestion of what you should include. Literally all I knew about this movie before I watched it was that there are vampires in the 80s and Lulu liked it. And one time I watched an episode of the Netflix documentary series, Warren Stories. And there was an episode about how this movie is a cult classic that interviewed someone who was in it, but they weren't like an important person. It was just like talking about the movie. And that is literally all I knew about this film before I saw it. So I, was, I went in pretty much blind, but I did enjoy it a lot. I can be kind of picky about vampire media I don't know I just there's some tropes in vampire media that I do like and some that I don't but I thought this was just a lot of fun and it also had a really good soundtrack the basic premise of the lost boys is that it's about a pair of teenage brothers Michael and Sam who moved to Santa Carla California which is literally just Santa Cruz with the name changed it's literally just Santa Cruz my, my favorite fact about this movie is that it was going to be set in Santa Cruz, but I guess whoever is in charge of, I don't know, PR for Santa Cruz is like, you cannot set this movie in Santa Cruz and call it Santa Cruz because there's a line about how Santa Carla is the murder capital of the world and they didn't want the bad PR of Santa Cruz, murder capital of the world being in a movie. So yes, it is literally just Santa Cruz with the name changed. Uh, anyway. 
So these two teenage brothers move to Santa Carla with their mother after she gets divorced and they move in with their grandfather. Michael, the older of the two brothers, falls for a girl called Star and ends up hanging around with a motorcycle gang who turn out to be vampires, while the younger brother, Sam, befriends some other kids who turn out to be vampire hunters. So basically everyone in this movie accidentally gets involved in vampire business and it kind of proceeds from there. The most important thing you should know about this movie is that it is so 80s. Like, it is incredibly 80s. I was not around in the 80s, as you might have guessed by the fact that I am a current college student, but it was just infused with extremely strong 80s energy throughout the entire movie, and it was kind of fun. Like, the vampire motorcycle gang all have mullets, which is meant to show that they are very cool and hip, which did make me laugh because as someone who was born in, like, you know, the early 2000s, I don't really think of mullets as being, like, a cool hip thing. And the soundtrack is also very 80s, but also really fun. Like there's an original song, they play a bunch that kind of comes up through the movie a bunch of times called Cry Little Sister. That's just like very cool and spooky and gothic. I think it was written for this movie actually. So other artists have covered it. And the intro is just great because it's this really creepy song playing as the camera zooms in on this nighttime carnival. And it just does a great job of setting up the vibes of this movie and the setting in particular, because there's this like bright seaside town with a carnival, but then it also has this dark underbelly of, you know, blood sucking vampires that feed on people and like all this kind of violence lurking under the surface of this seemingly idyllic seaside town is just great. I love the vibes. I also really liked the idea of these vampires being like very modern, cool figures who kind of like hide in plain sight by pretending to be just like the youth. Because I think sometimes vampires are portrayed as like these ancient dusty relics who are kind of stuck in the past and wear like capes and live in big crumbling mansions, which is also fun, but it can also be enjoyable to watch vampires just like hide by pretending to be regular people who are like very modern and like up to date. So that is kind of fun. Yeah, I agree. There is definitely a lot of vampire media where there's this sense of vampires being elite and rich with this kind of old money or aristocratic feel like how Dracula is a nobleman or like another movie about vampires that I recently saw is this 1983 movie called The Hunger where the vampires are literally this like rich couple living in a New York City penthouse. And even in like what we do in the shadows, both the movie and the TV show, the vampires are kind of played as like comically out of touch with the modern world. But in The Lost Boys, the vampires are very much like representative of youth culture with like very current senses of style and attitudes. And a lot of people actually just kind of dismiss them as this rowdy gang of teenage punks and like don't realize they're vampires. I also loved the setting for the movie and the way that it's set in like this kind of bright, colorful world of a tourist town in California that's like really sunny during the day. It has a thriving nightlife at night, but it's also a gruesome vampire movie and there's like a lot of stuff happening in the shadows and like violence and blood. It was just a really cool contrast. Yeah, I also really enjoyed that contrast. Like I said, like the setting is one of my favorite parts of this movie. And I also enjoyed that that also sort of extends to the vampire's lair because instead of sleeping in coffins or in like a mausoleum or a dusty old mansion, their lair is in this old hotel that was destroyed by an earthquake. So that's sort of another fun aspect of the setting and the way that it kind of spins vampire myths into a slightly different version. As Lulu mentioned uh, earlier, there's a really fun scene near the beginning of the movie that's basically a motorcycle race with some vampires. And it's just like, it's a lot of fun to watch. I enjoyed it kind of like the the leader of the vampire motorcycle gang who's called David, who's also like the boyfriend of the girl star that Michael's interested in, kind of like challenges Michael to a motorcycle race and they like kind of go like across the town and it's just like sort of fun and you get like the sense of like these like really careless people who are like immortal and they can do whatever they want. They spent like all night out having fun and killing people. So it's just like the vibes are fun. I enjoyed it. There should be more movies with vampires doing motorcycle races. I'm glad this is our most important consensus so far. <laughs> if anyone knows movies that have vampire motorcycle chases, please write in to let us know. I think this is a need that must be filled. The plot of this movie is kind of kicked off when Michael meets this girl called Star, who is David's girlfriend, although I'm not exaggerating when I say that we know like literally nothing about their relationship and I'm just, I'm under the impression that they're dating because he's really like possessive of her. And so he becomes really fascinated with Star and then she falls in love with him. And then like the vampire gang is also kind of fascinated by Michael and decided to recruit him, which means like, you know, turn him into a vampire. So the plot is kind of kicked off 
by like his infatuation with this female character, although she's not actually super important for the rest of the film. David and Star's relationship is something I was thinking a lot about when I was watching this actually, because you've seen this once and I've seen this twice. And it is, I think, supposed to be accepted within the movie that David and Star are dating, but it's really more that he's just very possessive of her than they're actually romantic, which is just something I was thinking about vampires and relationships and how they sort of feed off of people. Like he is very possessive of her in a way that is like bad. And that's mostly how you get the sense that they're in a relationship. It was just something I was thinking about. I was like, huh, you never actually see them like be relationshipy in this movie. It's mostly like David is in charge of the vampires and Star is one of the vampires. So he's in charge of her. And like when Michael is interested in Star, that's in direct conflict to David. So I was just thinking that like, it's interesting how much this is a movie that's sort of driven by relationships. I don't know exactly where I was going with that, but I found it interesting upon rewatch. Yeah, so Michael kind of like ends up falling in with this gang of vampires because he's so fascinated with Star. And there is like some scenes with vampires doing like, I guess the vampire equivalent of hazing him, like the motorcycle chase, or there's the scene where they get Chinese takeout and then they make Michael think that he's eating worms and maggots instead of Chinese food by hypnotizing him. I have to say, even if I had not already known by this point in the movie that David and the rest of the gang were vampires, I would have guessed because no one eats just like straight white rice when you order Chinese takeout like that is a sign of evil like if you do that you do not eat human food that was somewhat sinister of them also it's kind of funny because I watched what we do in the shadows before I watched a lot of classic vampire movies so I didn't actually know what they were parodying which means that when I watch a lot of older classic vampire movies I'm like oh that's what they were parodying in what, what we do in the shadows and there is a scene in the movie, what we do in the shadows that is sort of like based off of the scene where they hypnotize Michael into thinking that he's eating maggots, which is disgusting. But when I was watching it, I was like, oh, gross. And then I was like, oh, okay. That was a joke about that in the earlier movie. Now I see. Yeah, they changed it to be spaghetti and what we do in the shadows. But I was watching this movie and I was like, oh, that wasn't just them being weird. That was like a reference. Okay, I see. So the more things you know, I guess. Right. So Michael's um, crush on Star after he meets her at this like seaside night concert leads to him falling with this group of vampires and then they want to turn him into a vampire and it becomes like a whole thing where Michael is like torn between being a human and a vampire and his younger brother at the same time is befriending these two guys in town the frog brothers who are vampire hunters which means that Michael is like kind of becoming Sam's enemy. And there's a really funny part where Sam learns that Michael is turning into a vampire and his reaction is just, wait till I tell mom, you'll be in big trouble. Instead of like, oh my God, my brother's a vampire. His first immediate reaction is like tattling on his brother. Uh, as someone with a sibling, I can confirm that is peak sibling behavior. And that is exactly how I would behave if I learned that you were turning into a vampire. So, wow, you just admitted to being a, a traitor on our podcast. This is so sad. You wouldn't support me in my new vampire lifestyle. I'm, I'm very hurt. I mean, I feel like our parents should at least know, you know, the, the mom in this movie is fairly uh, oblivious to what's going on with her kids because this isn't a world where vampires are like accepted. Like when Sam and Michael both learn that vampires are real, they're pretty shocked by it because they're basically only creatures in myths and legends for them. So when they come to Santa Carla, they kind of learn that like vampires are real, actually, and then they start to fall in with them or with the vampire hunters, depending on their plot lines. You know, I think we talked about this a little bit in our episode on Legendborn by Tracy Dion, but sometimes when I'm consuming like urban fantasy media where there's a secret magical world sort of like hidden beneath ours, I'm always like, but like, why don't the witches just tell people they're witches and like have to stop hiding? But I think with vampire media, it always makes sense because with vampire media, you literally are killing people and draining them of their blood. And therefore that's something you probably want to like do on the down low. So with vampire media, I'm always like, oh, okay, it makes sense that like no one would know about the existence of vampires before they like personally encounter them because these vampires are kind of like trying to keep a low profile or like a semi-low profile, they're not that low profile in Santa Carla, but they're not like being like, I'm a vampire and I eat people to stay alive. Cause that would like invite people to come kill you. Yeah, basically it's like they want to be seen around town as like a motorcycle gang of rowdy youths, but they don't really want to be seen as a group of vampires because as this movie demonstrates, when you are known as the vampire, people will then come and try to kill you. So this movie is horror-y, but I would say that it leans a lot into the comedy. Like 
Sam's reaction to Michael becoming a vampire being like I'm gonna tell mom or the fact that like the two vampire hunters are like 14 year olds who work at a comic book shop maybe they were 12 actually I'm very bad at judging ages of people younger than me anyway so like it is a horror movie and like there is like gore and kind of spooky bits but also it's like very much a black comedy which I liked because I enjoy what we do in the shadows so I'm like comedic vampire media is right up my alley exactly i think you can do serious vampire media pretty well but there is also like some good comedy that you can do with it and this movie does a pretty good mixture it definitely leans further into the horror the longer the movie goes along and then it kind of like dissolves into like straight up gore by the end but it's still pretty funny even then and like it works like it doesn't feel like they're just throwing in jokes that have like nowhere to fit it feels like it all kind of works really well and it's like a pretty cohesive whole so that was enjoyable I agree. I think that the mixing of tones worked pretty well for me because like there's scary stuff and then there's sort of fun stuff and then there's humor and I feel like it could have felt very tonally dissonant but I was like no I'm I'm vibing with this it works. So the weird thing about the plot of this movie is that Michael's interest in Star is basically what kicks off like the overall plot but she's not actually a very important character in the grand scheme of things. Like Michael first sees her at a concert in Santa Carla which is like I feel like if you know about the Lost Boys you know about like this infamous scene where like they're at like a party and there's like a saxophone player and it's like everyone's having fun. I thought that's the scene that everyone knows about when it comes to this movie. Anyway that's when Michael sees Star and he's like immediately in love with her and then like follows her around and flirts with her a bit and then like basically decides to hang out with a vampire gang because of her. But we we don't really know very much about Star. We know that her parents are ex-hippies which is a deduction that Michael makes from her name and that she is David's girlfriend and that she has been partially turned into a vampire by drinking his blood and then needs to drink the blood of a human in order to completely become a vampire and like that's kind of about it we never really get much of a sense of like why she likes Michael or like how she ended up with the vampire gang or like what her life before the vampire gang was she's kind of a very like one note character or like later in the movie she doesn't even give them any help like Michael goes to her and is like star help how do I like stop becoming a vampire and she doesn't like actually give him any useful advice they have to like go ask someone else so I found it a little bit strange if I like looked up and I was like wait the star hasn't done anything important in this movie since like the first scene right yeah I really noticed that when I was watching this movie for the first time because she is what draws Michael into the vampire world but then as a character doesn't do that much herself and it has some conflict in that she doesn't want to be a vampire and like is trying to escape David, which I think sort of does establish that she has these wants and needs within the immediate framework of the movie, but we don't have much of a sense of who she is outside of that. And also one thing I noticed about Star in this movie is that she's the only vampire we never see turn into her full vampire self, because uh, basically in this movie, the vampires have two forms, one that looks like a regular person, and you can just walk around at nighttime and not be immediately a vampire. And then a second form that's a lot more monstrous and they have sort of visible fangs and yellow eyes. And then the last third of the movie when like the tension's really ramping up and the humans and the vampires are fighting and stuff, we see all the vampires take on this more vampiric form, including Michael, even though he's not fully a vampire. But we only ever see Star in her human form, which I thought was an interesting thing that I picked up on by the end. And I was like, is it because she's the love interest that she isn't sort of able to become ugly or monstrous? I think Star should have been able to become a vampire because the whole climax of the movie is like fighting back against the vampires who want to turn them into like evil blood drinking monsters and like Star doesn't want that so I thought that she should have gotten to like do a little bit more so I thought that was kind of too bad. I mean I wouldn't want her to become a vampire become a vampire but I do think it would have been satisfying if she'd sort of been able to have a moment where she takes down David because their relationship obviously has a lot of tension in it and She's trying to escape. Also, the other day I was thinking about this movie and I was like, is her name supposed to be a Peter Pan reference? Because there are sort of these Peter Pan references sprinkled throughout this movie, like the title being Lost Boys. And there's that whole thing in Peter Pan where it's like, you get to Neverland by going to like the second star on the right and straight on till morning. And she's the thing that guides Michael into the vampires, similar to the way that like the stars are how you navigate to Neverland. And I was like, is this a reference or am I reading too much into it? I feel like it could be a reference because they do place like a lot of emphasis on her name. Like Michael really wants to know what her name is when he meets her. And then when he does learn the name, he's like, oh, so your parents were like ex-hippies. So like that could be, I think that could be a reference. 
Also, on the topic of the ex-hippie thing, Michael deduces that because his parents were ex-hippies and he said that he was very close to being called Moonbeam. And personally, I would have watched this movie had the main character been called Moonbeam Emerson. <laughs> I think it would have been kind of fitting for someone who turns into a vampire, you know? That's true, actually. You're right. Kind of like yeah. the reverse of Sunshine from Robin McKinley's book of the same title. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. The the other strange thing about Star is that there's this little kid called Laddie who is also drunk vampire blood but is not yet a full vampire who is just like following this vampire gang around for like the whole movie. Like he's just in the background scenes with the vampires and it is very unclear to me what he is doing with this gang and like is he Star's brother? Like is she just really protective of him? Like what is he doing there and like what is their relationship and why is he in this movie? And this is like basically never explained. I'm just like kept looking in background scenes and I was like, oh, there's a child here. What is this child doing here? And we never get an answer. It is kind of random. I don't think he's actually Star's brother. I think a lot of the vampires have sort of this runaway teen punk who's like squatting in a hotel vibe. Like they literally live in an abandoned hotel. And I think he's just supposed to be sort of another kid they picked up along the way. And Star is sort of like very sisterly or sort of maternal towards him. So I don't think they're actually siblings, but I think she's like, has a sibling-esque relationship with him. But yeah, it was kind of random that they're like all these teenager or slightly older punk vampires and motorcycles. And they're like, and here is this child over here. <laughs> like, what are you going to do with this kid when you, turn the, when you turn him into a vampire? He's going to be like five years old forever if you turn him into a vampire now. This seems like a bad investment. And this is like never really explained. So. I know, that would be a nightmare. Just being a child forever. Oh God. Okay. Anyway, so Michael is in love with Star. She of like some personality, but not as much as we sorry what okay I, I do want to be fair about one thing in this movie though which is that we don't know that much about star's backstory but we also pretty much don't know anything about the other vampires backstories like david is the most important full vampire in this movie and we don't know anything about his life prior to becoming a vampire we don't know if david's his real name we don't know where he's from we don't know how he got turned like this is an action comedy movie not a character study so it's not like we need to know the details of everyone's lives but admittedly yeah star i was kind of like i got the sense that she is some kind of runaway who like left her birth family behind because unlike Michael, she doesn't have a human family she seems to want to return to. So I think a lot of the characters don't reference their pasts because I get the sense that they have like left them behind intentionally to come to Santa Carla. Yeah, that's definitely, I think, a reading that you can get from the character. I just wish that she'd had a little bit more to do in the second half of the movie when they're, like, more actively fighting against the vampires because she also does not want to become a vampire, but she's just kind of reduced to, like, following Michael around and, like, doing his plans of how to escape the vampires. So I thought that was kind of too bad. Agreed. I think it would have been satisfying if she had her own showdown with the vampire. She doesn't really get to do much. So anyway, Michael is in love with Star, and so he begins hanging out with the vampire motorcycle gang, which, like, great decision there. I'm sure that will not lead to any problems. And then David decides that he wants to turn Michael into a vampire. So the rest of the kind of actually focuses on the relationship between David and Michael. And my main thing that I have to say about this is like, is it gay to really, really want another guy to drink your blood so he can become part of your immortal vampire gang? I think the answer is yes. Okay, yes. I There's a lot I want to talk about in this movie in relation to sexuality and like allegories for sexuality but before we get into that I do just want to be clear that in vampire lore there's like a whole process where you get turned into a vampire that's not just being bitten it often involves like a human consuming blood of a vampire or being like injected with it so Michael is tricked into drinking David's blood by being told it's wine um, and doesn't spit it out immediately because I'm like, dude, those don't taste the same at all. Anyway, and that's why he's sort of in the process of becoming a vampire and is like half human, half vampire. But yes, I think there's a lot to discuss in relation to the relationships in this movie. So maybe we'll dive into that now. Yeah, I think off the top of my head, the first thing that stands out about this like vampire relationship is that we learn later on in the film that David wanted Michael to be the person that Star kills so she can become a vampire. Like he wanted Star to kill David and drink it. Like she, he wanted Star to kill Michael and drink his blood and become a vampire. And then he like changes his mind as soon as he actually meets Michael. And we do learn that there are like other reasons for this later in the movie, like why he wants Michael to become a vampire. There's like other stuff going on there, which is spoilery. We'll get into there later, but it's still like, that sure is like a, a 180 decision to make as soon as you meet this guy. Like, sure, okay, that's a dynamic. 
it's just, it's a dynamic. We're going to say that again and again throughout this podcast episode, I bet. But there are just some very interesting relationship dynamics happening in this movie. And like, not to be uh, all, I am an English major who did in fact take an entire class about analyzing gay subtext in historical media. I mean, it was a class about 18th century love poetry, but like, I think it still applies. But like, it's kind of a classic example of like the concept of triangulation of desire, which is when you have a love triangle, like two men fighting over a woman or two women fighting over a man, but you're actually using this relationship to talk about the relationship between the people doing the fighting and not the people who are supposedly in love. And so it's kind of a classic example of that because like the premise is that like Michael is in love with Star, so he gets drawn into the vampire gang because of that. Then as soon as he's as soon as he becomes part of the vampire gang, the relationship that the movie focuses on is his relationship with David and like whether or not he will like be seduced into becoming a vampire and like drinking blood and becoming part of the gang. So like his relationship with Star might be what kicks off the plot, but it's not actually what the plot is about. I am also not above using my college education to analyze a silly horror comedy. So let's do more of that. One thing that I was thinking about a lot while watching this movie is the way that vampires can represent the other, which is something that I talked a lot about in the vampire cinema class I took with a bunch of other people. But it's also just like an idea in general that I think about a lot when consuming media where supernatural beings are contrasted with humans. So like X-Men comics, pretty much anything involving werewolves, paranormal books where witches have to hide their magic from the human world, stuff like that. So vampires are often representing like the threatening other to the protagonists or very occasionally it can be like an other that the protagonist identifies with. So it can be that vampires represent a different sexuality, foreigners, disability analogs, and there's like this divide between the humans and the vampires. So like the vampires obviously are different from humans in that they drink blood, but also they can sort of represent like a different type of human, if that makes sense. Vampires are appealing to people. Like this is fundamentally like why people find like vampire media sexy is because they are outside of our society and they can indulge in desires that we cannot or should not indulge in such as excess or sexuality, violence, being gay, owning a motorcycle, piercing your ear, having a mullet, eating people, staying out all night without parental supervision, basically like the freedom to like do whatever you want and like be whoever you are and like do whatever like weird things you want to do without being like judged is kind of the appeal of vampires. Right, so it's like vampires can initially start off being this threat. Like I have not read Dracula, but I've seen the 1931 movie and Dracula is this like foreigner from Eastern Europe who comes to England and is like seducing the woman of like the upright cool British guys who have to take him down and Dracula represents like a threat that must be dealt with and he's the bad guy but the thing is that if vampires represent the other then people who feel that they are like othered by regular society or can't like indulge in things because they're considered taboo might start to emphasize with the vampire and be like, actually, I kind of feel like I'm a vampire because I feel like everyone hates me and thinks that I'm a threat that needs to be dealt with. So I feel like there's stories where vampires are a threat that have to be defeated for the protagonist to get a happy ending. And then there's stories where becoming a vampire can be like a good thing. And it can mean like finding a community or like being able to like indulge in this aspect of yourself that you've had to like repress or something so vampires can be a bad thing or they can be a good thing and I think the lost boys is some of the former where vampires are bad because like they kill people but also it's a story about someone who is a half vampire and is torn between being a vampire and being a human but also therefore he's torn between like the groups they represent and obviously there's his family and the stability they represent or the kind of reckless excitement of David's gang of vampires And like a lot of vampire media, he rejects being a vampire and David's group and returns to the human world and his family, which you could kind of read as being like a return to like traditional air quote normal life, which is like why readings of like gay vampires can get really dicey when they're the bad guys that have to be defeated for a happy ending. So like, I'm not saying it's a good allegory, but like there's a lot to think about because I don't know, there's just many things to think about. 
Yeah, that's why I find vampires interesting, or at least one of the reasons, is that they are a fantasy thing that does not exist in the real world. Like, I'm assuming vampires, if you're real, you can write in at neverthetwinsfellmeet at gmail.com and tell us that you're real. But anyway, uh, vampires are not real, but they can be used as a metaphor for, like, real desires that people want to indulge in but feel that they can't, which is kind of why, like, vampires as sexy things exist because people find the idea of being able to like indulge in these desires interesting. I also have been taking a class on like gothic literature this semester because you know I'm a college student which we occasionally bring up on this podcast anyway and we were talking about how horror is kind of a conservative genre because things often return to the status quo like you have this traditional life and then something bad comes along and interrupts it and you have to like get rid of the bad thing and then things like go back to the way they were. But I feel like what's interesting about The Lost Boys is the way that Michael was kind of balanced between like, he, there is like an aspect of the vampire life that is like alluring to him. And like, is it being a vampire that intrigues him or is it just David or is it Star or is it both? And I just feel like it's an interesting story because it's like, yes, being a vampire is bad, but also it can mean like that you get to be free. There's a lot of things that vampirism can be a metaphor for. Going slightly off topic, one that I think has been coming up more recently in fiction is like vampirism as an allegory for being trans because you like physically change yourself in order to become the best possible version of yourself, which is to be clear, not at all thing, not at all a thing in this movie. Being a vampire is presented as like inherently like scary and bad. But there are interesting stories like, um, I believe it's called Small Changes Over Long Periods of Time by K.M. Sparza, which is about a trans guy who's also a vampire. Or I think it's called Dead Collections by, I want to say Isaac Fellman, I could be wrong, but it's also about a trans vampire. And so there's kind of this idea of like the vampires can also represent like who you want to be because like you become this immortal, like perfect creature frozen in time, which is just a very interesting metaphor. And one that is much more specific to this movie and not me going wildly off topic because I have lots of thoughts about gender studies and vampires is vampirism as a metaphor for drug addiction, which is kind of a big thing in this movie if you think about it like at all, because vampirism in this movie has kind of like a all the cool kids are doing it like thing. like there's this aspect of the peer pressure that Michael faces when he's being recruited by the vampire gang, like when they give him the wine bottle that has David's blood in it, they start like chanting at him to drink it. And like, he feels compelled to go along with all these like weird dangerous stunts the vampires are doing, even though he knows they're dangerous. So it like very much feels like a drug addiction movie sort of in that like, he feels like he has to do the thing because all the cool kids are doing it. And now he's like suddenly like, desperately wants this thing uh, as a result of indulging in peer pressure, which in Michael's case is blood, but you also could think of it as a metaphor for drug addiction. So that's just like one thing that I don't think comes up as much in vampire media, but you could definitely do a reading of this movie similar to that idea, I think. Right. I feel like a lot of David's recruitment of Michael relies on peer pressure. Like, you know, the old saying, if all your friends were jumping off a bridge, would you do that too? Like there is literally a scene where the vampires jump off a bridge and Michael's like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. And David's like, oh, stop being coward and jump off the bridge. And then Michael jumps off the bridge. And that's sort of like, you know, a very heavy headed symbolism for him being recruited by the vampires. Yeah, like this scene is literally the end of the sequence where the vampires are recruiting him and then like he wakes up in his room and like after this he is a half vampire so like jumping off the bridge is literally like a metaphor for becoming a vampire so being having a vampire is like peer pressure I don't know it's, it's a lot there's a lot to think about so much to think about and also the way that all the vampires except star I think all the guy vampires at least have a single earring as a physical marker of becoming a vampire is kind of interesting to me because it's like Obviously being a vampire comes with physical markers of your transformation and that you have fangs, but then it's also like, it. I feel like it sort of ties into the vampires kind of representing like subculture in this and that they have this like fashion statement that marks you as a member of David's group. Also Star's first line of dialogue is literally offering to pierce Michael's ear for him. So make of that what you will. Wow, vampires puncturing people. <laughs> Who's ever heard of this concept? I know, it's unheard of. 
I have to say, I do think it's kind of funny that the vampire in this movie is called David, because that is, like, such a normal name. And, like, they want you to know that his name is David, because everyone in this movie spends, like, a lot of time screaming each other's names a lot. Like, at one point I was like, did I, did I think I'm going to forget that the main character's name is Michael? Because I very much know that his name is Michael, because he's been screaming Michael for the last five minutes over and over again. But anyway, it's a little bit funny, because I feel like... In a lot of vampire media, they all have like interesting names. Like we talked about in our episode about baking magic of the vampires in Sunshine are called Constantine and Beauregard. There's like, you know, Dracula is kind of like a cool, unusual name, or like the vampires what we do in the shadows be having names like Nadia and Laszlo. And then in this case, we just have like David. I mean, I think it kind of ties into the fact that you don't think the vampires are vampires at first. They could just be some like rowdy teenagers who are squatting in a hotel if you don't know that they also drink blood. And also, I don't know, I was kind of wondering if I'm reading too much into this, but the fact that David's name starts with a D and Dracula's name starts with a D, could this be a coincidence or am I overthinking it? I mean, it could be a coincidence, but also their mom's name is Lucy and in Dracula, Lucy is a character who is a spoiler seduced into like I haven't actually read Dracula. She's like seduced into like either dating a vampire or like becoming a vampire or being killed by one. And anyway, their mom's name is Lucy. And then it turns out, spoilers, the big bad of the movie is her boyfriend, Max, who is actually a vampire. Wait, I didn't even think of that. And I've seen Dracula. I really should have thought of that before. Really? That's what I thought of as soon as they were as soon as they were like Lucy's boyfriend's a vampire. I was like, oh, like Dracula. But anyway, the, the spoilers, spoilers, uh, the big plot twist of this movie is that in order for Michael and Star to go back to being normal people and not half vampires, they have to kill the head vampire. Uh, and they are under the impression that the head vampire is David, and if they kill David, then they will go back to normal, but actually it turns out that David is not the head vampire. The head vampire is this guy called Max, who is their mom's new boyfriend. It okay. is kind of funny to me that there's this whole thing where their mom is just trying to go on dates and get a job, and they're like running around trying to kill vampires, and she's just like, God, what has gotten into my kids lately? So I sort of enjoyed, like, I think that oblivious adults is definitely a trope in a lot of horror and fantasy media, but it was sort of funny to me in this one because you just like, why are my kids like this? Did the move do something to them? Like, are they really being hit hard by the divorce suddenly? No, they're being, they're getting in trouble with vampires. So that was just kind of funny. Very funny. Like there is a scene where she's trying to have a serious dinner with her boyfriend and they've invited the teenage vampire hunters over to their house who are like doing all these weird tests to like see if anyone in the room is a vampire. And she's just like, I know you don't like me dating again, but I divorced her father. I deserve to be happy. And I was like, Lucy, this is not what that's about. It was kind of funny. So the kids do manage to get to the vampire hotel lair and kill one of the vampires, but unfortunately just kind of brings like the wrath of the rest of the gang down on them. So the climax of the movie is then when the vampires come to their house and try to kill them all and turn Michael into one of them once and for all. And can I just say, the fake blood budget for this movie must have been so high. (laughs) Yeah, there's like barely any blood in like the first, I don't know, hour or so of this movie. And then the last half hour is just like blood everywhere. This is a vampire movie. There's blood in vampire movies. Did you forget that vampires are about blood? You definitely won't once you've seen this movie. I have to say, having seen a number of vampire movies, this one did have higher quality fake blood than other ones I've seen where I'm just like, that's red paint. You just poured red paint on someone's throat. You're not fooling anyone. So it did look more like blood in this movie, even if at one point I was like, I think they put glitter in this blood and I'm not kidding. I feel like there was glitter in that vampire blood. I did not notice that, but I will take your word for it because you've seen this movie twice and I've only seen it once. And I was too busy being like, oh God, there's a lot of fake blood now than to like take notes on what the fake blood looked like. Also, do you think David's minions felt great shame knowing as they died that they were bested by some 12 year olds who stole holy water from a local church. Oh, absolutely. There is no way that you could not be humiliated by those kids. They were like, I don't know if they were 12 or 14, but they were definitely middle schoolers. And that would just be, that would just be humiliating, but also very funny. I really enjoyed the montage of them kind of getting ready their homemade vampire weapons because there's literally a scene where they break into a church where I think there's like some kind of baptism or a wedding happening and they're just like haha don't mind us we're just filling up our canteens with holy water I found that really funny personally it was funny I love a good preparation to kill the bad guys montage so they managed to kill all the vampires who come to their house in various incredibly gruesome ways which is where the fake blood budget comes in and they're like hurrah we defeated the vampires but it actually 
thinks that the Lucy's new boyfriend Max is the real head vampire, not David. And he, uh, the reason that Michael is being turned into a vampire is that Max wants to turn the whole family so he can convince Lucy to also become a vampire. And then he can like have this like weird nuclear family unit vampire family, which is a very good plot twist and also kind of a wild motivation. I did not call this plot twist the first time I saw this movie because there is that whole very awkward dinner scene where the kids are trying to prove that Max is a vampire. So they do things like pour holy water on him and like feed him garlic and he's completely unaffected by it. And I was just like, oh, haha, okay. I guess that was just a red herring. Just must be David being in charge of the vampires and the kids are just like overthinking things. But then at the end, when he like reveals that he was a vampire, I was like, gasp, I didn't call this because normally I call plot twists. So I'm like impressed that this vampire movie from the 80s that has been around a very long time did not yeah it turns out that the reason he wasn't affected by anything they did to him at dinner was because michael had formally invited him into the house which he kind of passed off as like a uh your father's not here you're the head of the house like you should invite me in and this made him like completely immune to all of the usual vampire killing methods and it's a great plot twist because like you told me not to look up anything about this movie beforehand and i didn't so i knew nothing about it going in and i was genuinely shocked that the vampire hunter uh, that the boyfriend was actually a vampire because like it's he's a, just like this random guy who has like glasses and works in like a video store and he's just like completely different from all the other actual vampires in the movie so when he's revealed that he is one you're like oh my god i didn't see that coming at all also it's really interesting to think of this twist in the light of our discussion about david's vampires kind of representing I want to say alternative lifestyle, but I know that's like often a euphemism for gay people and it's bad, but I literally mean alternative lifestyle as in being a runaway punk who's squatting in a hotel, like that like kind it, of- it literally is an alternative lifestyle, just like not in, in the way that you usually think of it. Right, like I mean, they actually are living an alternative lifestyle that they're like squatters and part of a motorcycle gang, but also like the kind of like seduction kind of possible like gay coding of David and Michael's relationship. And at first you're like, okay, so he's torn between like his family who are sort of this like, nuclear unit that represents like normal values and like the vampires they're like these punks that are maybe like of ambiguous sexuality and like dress in weird and interesting ways but then it's like actually no like the head vampire is this incredibly normal guy who wants like a nuclear family and basically is the main villain of this movie the heteronormative desire for a nuclear family possibly i actually think that the main villain of this movie is stepfathers a bold claim, but not entirely incorrect. <laughs> because like the whole thing in this movie is that they have moved to Santa Carla because their parents got divorced. We don't ever see their dad in the film, but from what their mom says, he seems like kind of a jerk. And so like their mom is under the impression that they're like really unhappy because she's dating someone new. And they're like, that's not what they're worried about. They're actually worried about vampires. But then at the end of the movie, the fact that she is dating someone new, in fact, does turn out to be the big problem of the movie. And the big bad literally is like the guy who is trying to become their new father. So like, is the moral of the story that stepfathers are evil? I feel like it could be. Like, I do not personally agree with the idea that stepfathers are evil, but this is definitely a reading that the movie is doing. And I'm like, okay, sure. It's actually um, pie gender equality, if you think about it, because there are so many evil stepmoms in fairy tales that the Lost Boys is simply adding to the category of evil stepparents. But like this time he's an evil stepfather. You know what? That's fair. I will give it that point. But it is pretty wild because for the whole movie, you're kind of presented uh, with the vampires as like this like wild, reckless group who live outside normal society. And then like the worst vampire of them all is like the most normal guy in the film, which is, you know, it's a plot twist because of that. But it's also kind of funny because it sort of disrupts all the previous ideas about vampires that you have from watching the film. But also, I feel like the idea that Max is hiding in plain sight is such a fitting installment in like this vampire tradition because like Dracula's whole thing was that he was this nobleman or I don't know I feel like vampires are good at blending in and the fact that Max is just blending in as a guy who runs a movie rental store in Santa Carla and goes on dinner dates and then it's like he's evil and wants to drink your blood like I feel like that that is fitting. That's also a good point. I thought that the ending of this movie like the big fight scene against the vampires was really fun and inventive because they kind of like fortify their house against the vampires before they get there at dusk so they have like all of these like vampire killing implements ready to go and then they like fight the vampires one by one like they shove one of them into a bath of garlic and holy water and he just like 
dissolves and it's super gross but also kind of cool and then like blood starts coming out of the like all the faucets in their house because they killed a vampire in their bathtub which is super gross but also kind of funny because like how high is the bill going to be to fix your plumbing after you have a vampire die at your bathtub but anyway it's just like a fun sequence because they're killing all these vampires and kind of like inventive ways and they're just like fighting in like this house and they're like hoping that their mom doesn't come back early from her date and like then she does and that causes even more problems but it's an entertaining sequence and so then david dies when michael shoves him on some mounted deer horns during a fight because the grandfather character in this film was like really obsessed with taxidermy which is kind of a cool death because i saw it coming in like a pleasing payoff way because as soon as they had the grandfather be really interested in taxidermy and have like horned things that are stuffed around the house I was like ah this is this is Chekhov's taxidermy collection because you can kill a vampire by stabbing them in the heart and then you know they stab him in the heart by like throwing him onto a deer and I was like wow I called that yeah as soon as the movie flashed to those taxidermy deer heads i was like oh boy somebody is getting impaled and i was right it's a pretty wild fight scene because like vampires can like float in this movie so like fighting like all around the house like on the ceiling and like david tries to convince michael uh to join him by shouting like you have my blood in your veins which is just pretty wild and then he like shoves him onto the taxidermy deer and impales him i i believe he's supposed to be dead although the other vampires in this movie, when they die, they just kind of like explode and dissolve. And like David doesn't do that. He's just kind of like lying there like dead. And I wasn't sure if that was maybe supposed to be a sequel hook that he's like not actually gone or whatever. But anyway, it was a cool death scene. I sort of feel like it could be a sequel hook, but also it's because then you have the bit where Max comes home from the date with the mom and he walks into the like utterly wrecked house and he walks up to David's body and he's like weirdly calm and you're like wow this guy should be freaking out this is kind of weird and then he like puts his hand on David's face to check that he's dead and he's like oh man that's so disappointing you're like oh no he's evil yeah it's a great moment uh, I found in general the climax of this movie really tense because I wasn't sure if the, if the ending was going to have like a kill all the humans thing or kill all the vampires or like was Michael going to give in to becoming a vampire and turn against his family? Like who was going to make it out of the movie alive? So I was genuinely like on the edge of my seat watching it because the climax gets kicked off like pretty much by accident. They try to kill all the vampires and they only manage to kill one and then they're like, oh no, the rest of them are coming for us. So like it's pretty tense. Like the first hour or so of the movie is like vampires some drama and then like the last half hour is like really ramps up the tension in like an effective way so I was sitting there and I was like I was genuinely unsure how things are going to go and then when they threw the plot twist of who the head vampire was in I was just like oh this is even better it was very fun watching you experience that in live action because I had experienced that not that long ago and I was like how is she gonna react when Max is evil and then it was worth it also, I do think that this movie has the best final line of any vampire movie ever. I have not seen every vampire ever, but I still firmly, firmly believe this because basically Max is revealed as the big bad vampire and then their grandfather, who was also out for the night because they managed to like, get him out of the house because they were afraid the vampires were going to kill him if they came there. Anyway, he comes back and drives over back with a car and impales him on the fence which is really great and then he gets out of the car and everyone's like expecting him to be really freaked out because our house is like totally destroyed and full of dead vampires and he's just like that's the one thing I could ever stomach about Santa Carla too many damn vampires and the movie ends and up until then you're under the impression that the grandfather has no idea what's going on and then it turns out he knew about the vampires all along and is like not bothered by them and just like kills one of them and is totally cool and then the movie ends and it's great. I think it's also a great example of the way this movie really leans into the comedy because you just have this very intense sequence of betrayal and murder and explosions and blood and then it ends on like this like kind of pow comedic moment and you're just like oh haha the grandfather knew all along I can't believe I didn't realize that it is a fun last line this is kind of on a completely different topic but one thing that I was thinking about that's kind of interesting about this movie is its relationship with the existing vampire pop culture because we've referenced a bunch of vampire media while talking about it and the characters in the movie also use media about vampires to navigate like their knowledge of vampires in that the frog brothers who are like the young vampire hunters that sam meets 
give him a horror comic to educate him about vampires, but they never actually reference Dracula, which I found interesting because I feel like Dracula is like the most famous vampire of all time, but they never mention it. They're just like, yeah, go read this horror comic. He's a vampire. We're going to kill all of them. So I just found it sort of interesting, like what its relationship with prior vampire media was. It's kind of like how lots of serious zombie media doesn't like to use the word zombie. They're always like, the walkers, them, the Z's. I'm like, can we just say zombie? Like, everyone knows what a zombie is. It sort of reminded me of that, but like, also, they do have some references to prior vampire media because they start consulting books on like how to kill vampires and stuff. They just don't really talk about other pop culture with vampires. Also, this is very random, but if you want another piece of vampire media that is very heavily riffing on vampires but does not actually mention Dracula by name, you might enjoy A Dowry of Blood by S.T. Gibson, which is a horror novella about Dracula's brides teaming up to kill him and we talked about on this podcast. It's quite good. There's kind of like a similar vibe of the head vampire seducing and recruiting people into this like life of vampirism, but also being very possessive and controlling. So if you like the vibes of that, you might enjoy this kind of thing. Also, Dowry of Blood is like super, super gay. So there's also that. Oh yeah, like all the vampires are bisexual and dating each other. Um, oh, okay. We, we, Actually, did, we did have an episode on this book because we like it so much. We do like it's Dowry of Blood a lot. Okay. Um, Actually, just on the topic of head vampires seducing and recruiting people, I think we should talk about David like a little bit because I just found him a really interesting character because like I am not an expert on 80s movies by any means like actually a lot of my knowledge of 80s pop culture comes from Stranger Things which means that I will then go watch the actual 80s stuff that Stranger Things is riffing on being like wow getting a lot of Stranger Things vibes from this which is really embarrassing to admit but it's true <laughs> anyway um so I don't think I've seen like most of these actors and anything else I don't think I've seen any other movies by this director uh, but I enjoyed it and I especially thought that David's actor was like very well cast in this he's very good at being this charismatic yet chilling vampire leader like I didn't find him hot in that I found his face like appealing but I found him very compelling to watch if that makes sense yeah I definitely agree like from the very first scene of this movie which is like the vampire gang uh hanging out causing problems uh, like a Santa Carla like carnival you kind of get the sense that like he is the leader of the vampire gang and like even though you know it's a really bad idea for like Michael to follow this gang of vampires and like get involved in them you kind of understand why he would do it because they're like really fascinating characters and he's kind of like the head vampire the one with the most screen time and like the most relationship to the main character so he's just very compelling to watch and you're like joining the vampire gang is a bad idea but I can also kind of see why you would do it because this is such like a compelling actor right and also like the motorcycle chase scene is just like very fun and high energy and you're like if being a vampire means you get to be reckless and have fun maybe I would bite some next I don't know let's give it a thought yeah I mean I think that's kind of what the whole point of the sequence is supposed to be that like you see like these people that Michael has previously been somewhat antagonistic towards uh, because of his relationship with Star, like kind of have some fun and like are up to cool things. And maybe like living a dangerous, reckless life can be like an enjoyable thing. And you're like, hmm, maybe this could be cool to do, but actually it's a bad idea, but it's still cool. Okay, can we, can we address the elephant in the room now, which is the fact that they are remaking this movie? I don't think they should do that. I, I think you shouldn't remake movies that are already perfectly good, you know? No, I, I really, I just don't think it would work well. So I, I, I looked this up a little bit just because I was curious. And it turns out that people have been trying a lot to remake this movie. So originally there was going to be a TV version, but then I guess because the pandemic hit that didn't get picked up or something. And now there's going to be a movie remake and not to be a preemptive hater, but I feel like you can't possibly remake this movie and make it like as good as the original. I just feel like the 80s vibes are not something that you can replicate. Like in the 2020s, I simply do not think you can do like the fun 80s vibes of this movie, which was made in the 80s. Like it just feels like lightning in a bottle. Like you, you couldn't do it again and you shouldn't try to do it again. Right. I think it's supposed to be set in the modern day, which could be, I will give it that, could be kind of interesting to see what their take on the vampires as representatives of like modern 2020 youth culture could be but I just feel like there's a lot about this movie that could not have worked like the humor or the kid vampire hunters but it does manage to work and I feel like a remake wouldn't be able to capture that organically 
Also, I just, I'm not quite sure vampires as representations of like 21st century youth culture would work quite as much. Like if vampires have no reflections in mirrors, can you be on TikTok? Is that possible? I don't think I really want to know the answer to that, actually. I think vampires just should not engage with technology. Unless they do it in funny ways. <laughs> Unless they do it in funny ways. But, you know, it's just like, I'm just not quite sure like why you would remake this if it's already good. I do agree that it's too bad that there was, I think supposed to originally be like a sequel or at least like other movies set in like the same world and those never happened which I think is too bad but I'm just like this is a perfectly good movie I don't think you really need to remake it because guess what it's already good yeah I think there was plans to do sort of a spiritual sequel called the lost girls which is about a group of female vampires and I think that would have been fun but obviously that didn't end up happening so I'm just like let's leave it alone for now Interestingly, there is a young adult book called The Lost Girls by the author Sonia Hartle, which came out last year, I think, and it is, in fact, about vampires. And it is, in fact, about a girl who was turned into a vampire in the year of our Lord, 1987, by a charismatic vampire. Um, but apparently it's not inspired by this movie at all, which I was kind of surprised to learn. Like, the author very explicitly said in an interview that I read that it's not inspired by this movie, which I was kind of surprised about. I would like to read it, though, because it's like, what if you got turned into a vampire in order to be like with your eternal love and like three years later you broke up and then like 20 years later you were just like a teenager and then you met like all the other women they'd also turn into vampires with the same promise so i think it's a fun idea and like if we can't get a sequel to the movie about female vampires there are like some other movies and books with the same vibes i think actually i know they've already signed off to make this remake and they have a cast and stuff but i think hollywood should listen to my pitch for the Lost Girls, which is, we have The Lost Boys, which is a movie about a bunch of male vampires who aren't a biker gang. We should have The Lost Girls, which is about a bunch of girls who are surfers by day and werewolves by night. I mean, I would watch it. I think Hollywood should maybe give you a call. I'm also just very curious to see how the remake will handle sort of like the sexuality and relationships of this, because you could, you could totally remake this movie and make it gay but like really homophobic like if you lean into David as this predatory figure and you're like he must be defeated so Michael can be together with his one true love star and be in a heterosexual family like that kind of thing but I also feel like you could do something kind of interesting with it and be like more progressive I don't know but I'm like now I have to keep an eye on the remake just to see what they do with this I know, like, I don't want to keep an eye on it because I don't feel interested in watching it, but I also feel compelled to know what they're going to do with it. And, like, I do think that you can do media where the vampires are also queer pretty well. Like, a lot of the stuff we've, other media that we've mentioned in this episode, the vampires are, like, explicitly bisexual, but it's also, like, something that you can very easily do, like, oh, the bisexual is evil and a vampire, and this is very bad. And I think you should maybe not do that. Don't do that. There is an interesting reading of this movie that I don't remember where I saw it because I looked it up when I first watched this movie, but I saw someone make a case for Sam, the younger brother, also being gay because there's this scene where the kid vampire hunters basically like bully him for the way he dresses when they first meet. And also apparently somewhere in his room, he has like a poster of some 80s male heartthrob on the wall, but I think I was kind of distracted by the taxidermy animals to notice that. <laughs> but I think like, you could do this movie and have characters that are gay without it being inherently linked to being a vampire and drinking blood, you know? I absolutely did not pick up on the poster at all. I was too busy being distracted by the many, many, many taxidermy animals in this movie. There are so many. There, there are a lot. <laughs> There's this running gag that the grandfather keeps giving people taxidermy animals and they're like, haha, I love it. Thank you so much. And then they like hide it in the closet. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was a good joke, yeah. Oh, I think one reason that I was maybe predisposed to like this movie, which is about like the glamorous vampire lifestyle, but also lots of blood and gore, is because one of the first vampire books that I can remember reading and one of my favorite ones is The Coldest Girl in Cold Town by Holly Black, which is basically all about like vampires exist in our world and they're kind of seen as like glamorous celebrities who have lots of parties but there's also like the blood and the gore and the death underneath and I think that's kind of similar vibes to this movie actually now that I think about it I think the coldest girl in cold time would also make a pretty great movie like it has all these fun party sequences but also like the vampires are like up to stuff and I think it's kind of the same vibes of like glittering parties and like people having fun but there's like bad stuff underneath 
True. Yeah, I feel like that would make a good movie. I have not read that book in a very long time, but I remember it being kind of interesting because the vampires are a public accepted part of life as opposed to being this sort of secret group that lives in the shadows, which is pretty different from most other vampire media. Oh, actually, speaking of um, more vampire media, if you are listening to this podcast because you have watched and enjoyed The Lost Boys, which hopefully you are because we just spoiled the whole movie if you haven't seen it. Um, Anyway, I might recommend the 2019 movie Bit to you. It's about a trans girl who moves to LA for the summer and falls in with a gang of queer female vampires who hunt terrible men. It stars Nicole Maines, who is a trans actress you might know from the TV show Supergirl, which I haven't seen, but I think that's like where she's mostly well known from. And it also has some interesting takes on like vampires and gender and sexuality and being like an outsider and stuff. It also has um, one of the greatest needle drops of all time in all all, all of cinema, but I will not spoil that for you. Uh, Warning that it does deal with violence against women, including like lesbians and trans women and women of color and stuff. I I think it maybe could have committed a little bit harder to this premise of like vampires and gender and stuff, but also why must a movie be good? Is it not enough to have a vampire girl gang running a nightclub in LA? I also second that I watched Bit before I watched The Lost Boys, but I do think they have kind of the same uh, vibes of like, it's California and you're having fun at night and there's like a gang of vampires that wants to recruit you. And also, oh look, some violence. Um, And also it's gay, but not like, you know, the vampires are evil and bad and gay reason because the main character is like a trans woman who's also lesbian. And so like the vampires are not portrayed as being bad for also having girlfriends. Also, you are correct. It does have one of the greatest needle drops of all time. I truly love that. Like the soundtrack for that movie. It's not a high budget movie. And I think it's because they spent all of their money on the single greatest song you possibly could have used in that movie. We have gone on so many tangents in this episode. I feel like we probably should wrap it up now before we we just- Sorry. Um, We've gone on a lot of tangents in this episode, so I feel like we should probably wrap it up now before we just like analyze every piece of vampire media we've ever consumed. Yeah, I think I have just about reached the bottom of my pie combines her and her interest in vampire media and her several gender studies classes and queer theory classes knowledge. I think we've just about reached the end of that, unfortunately. I think I'm going to end this on the note of saying that... um, Regrettably, if I am any character in this movie, it is the younger brother who goes to a comic store and immediately starts critiquing how they have organized all their comics out of order because I watched that and I was like, I unfortunately could see myself doing that, though probably more stealthily. (laughs) And with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our podcasting misadventures, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at NeverTwinsCast, Instagram at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet, Tumblr at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet.tumblr.com, we also have a more general website, neverthetwinsshallmeet.com, and an email where you can, I don't know, email questions or thoughts about vampires or anything like that, which is neverthetwinsshallmeet at gmail.com. Our next episode, which will be coming to you in about two weeks, will be on the Netflix TV show Arcane. If you've enjoyed this episode or others, you can maybe leave us a reading or a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes because we love to get positive reinforcement.